The Real Investment Show. Uh, a couple of things going on in the markets, of course, as we do get ready to wrap up the year. Of course, this is one of the bigger retail shopping seasons right now. Yeah, believe it or not, Halloween's one of the top retail shopping days of the year. People buying candies, costumes, you know, everything else. So it's it's a big retail shopping season. Retail sales out on Friday actually came in very strong, and that was good. That's kind of a good sign. Retails retail sales make up about 40% of personal consumption expenditures, which makes up 70% of GDP. So the stronger than expected retail sales number is certainly a good sign as we head to the fourth quarter. GDP has been very weak here. And the third quarter shows a little bit of potential hope here that we may see a bit of a pickup in retail sales and economic growth into the end of the year. Now, uh, there could be a couple of caveats to this, obviously, is that a lot of people are shopping early right now because of the supply chain disruptions. They're worried about being able to get, you know, product or goods for Christmas. So a lot of people are starting to order early to make sure that they can get, you know, computers, electronics, you know, especially anything that has a semiconductor in it. People are shopping a bit early here. So that's dragging forward some of these retail sales and which will leave kind of the question as we get into November and, of course, Black Friday, and then into December as we get into the actual rush of Christmas uh, shopping, will we see as strong of a retail season in the last couple of months if we are indeed pulling forward some of that consumption now, uh, trying to get ahead of supply chain disruptions? We'll see. Um, We'll also see what the impact of higher inflationary prices are on consumers who have, you know, basically don't have so much money to spend. So, they go out and they buy what they can and if higher prices may actually impact that. Now, one thing about that is that we, when we report retail sales, we don't report volume, we report the dollars of sales. So again, because of higher prices, you know, shopping season is gonna show a higher level of dollars spent over Christmas, over the shopping season. But that doesn't mean we actually bought more stuff. And again, so a bit of a different way to kind of look at things is look at the volume of retail sales versus the dollars of retail sales, because that'll give us much better indication of just really how strong uh, retail sales were, you know, uh, for the holiday shopping season. So a couple of things to kind of watch there, uh, particularly as we do kind of start to move into that retail shopping period. Um, that really is going to pick up steam here starting this week and going in through because we have uh, Halloween, then we've got Thanksgiving, a lot of shopping for that. And then, of course, the actual Christmas shopping season itself. The SEC has now approved the first futures-based Bitcoin ETF. Now, there's there are ETFs out there right now that have Bitcoin in it, and uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is an example is one and uh, this has been on fire here for the last couple of weeks there's been a big rally in the grayscale bitcoin trust it's gone from about 24 dollars a share all the way up to 47 so it's almost doubled in price just over the course of the last couple of weeks of course this corresponds with the rise in the bitcoin itself in the bitcoin it's like going to the walmart um, using the twitter <laughs> exactly <laughs> but the rise in bitcoin Uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks has been very strong in anticipation of wider adoption now that people can actually speculate into a Bitcoin-based 
ETF that's based on futures of Bitcoin. So again, this pulls more dollars potentially into Bitcoin itself. That's been lifting the price of Bitcoin now up over $60,000 for a Bitcoin. Um, and of course, this is translated into a stronger uh, growth in the Bitcoin ETF for Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So, uh, but again, this is an actual you know ETF that's based on Bitcoin you know, directly. The futures-based Bitcoin is going to be using options uh, and the underlying structure. So that provides it a bit more, you know, potential juice uh, as we speak, um, you know, talking about this particular thing. So again, but kind of good news here is that, you know, uh, again, we keep moving forward here with new products and new services, Coinbase out. Of course, you know, that's uh, when I went public earlier this year, uh, they uh, trade, you know, cryptocurrencies of all types. So again, you know, we're seeing more and more of that integration, but we have not really seen yet the actual use of Bitcoin in the transactional based system. That's the one that's the one hurdle we haven't really gotten over. Yes, there's some companies that will accept Bitcoin for payment of goods or services. But uh, recently, the second largest mortgage lender in the country was going to take Bitcoin um, for doing mortgage applications and buying real estate. They have now stopped that. So again, it's you know, because of the volatility, and this is one thing that we talked about earlier, because of the volatility of Bitcoin, it makes it very difficult to use it in a transactional based system other than just, you know, investing in it um, because it's so volatile. If I'm taking in Bitcoin for the purchase of a piece of property or a good product or service, whatever it is, um, the volatility doesn't make that advantageous because I could, you know, agree to a certain price for a service or a good. And then by the time it comes to pay for it, either me as the recipient or me as the payer could be paying, you know, astronomically more than I agreed to or, or getting astronomically less than I agreed to for my good or service. So until that volatility really slows down a lot, it's going to be very difficult for Bitcoin to get widespread adoption in the course of doing normal transactions. But from a from a speculation base, um, the volatility is actually very good for it. And again, that's going to really help the futures base as well for uh, these new ETFs that are coming out. So the, the first one's already uh, kind of getting approved. We should see that as early as tomorrow, but there's a whole bevy of companies that have just been waiting uh, for somebody to get approved. Now we'll have a kind of a whole floodgate of Bitcoin ETFs that are now going to start to open up in the market. What will be important today is a little bit of a pullback to the 50-day moving average that holds. If we do that, really, there's not much stopping the market as we enter into the seasonally strong period of the year. But, you know, I tell you what, over the last year or so, we've just seen a tremendous amount of money coming into the markets. Where's it all coming from? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. One thing we talked about this morning is, is where's all the money coming from? If you take a look at what's going on with the financial markets, there is just a wreck this year, 2021, we're having record inflows of capital into the financial markets. Uh, and now this is unprecedented type flows, right? I mean, these are, these are levels of, of monetary flows that we have never seen before at any other point in history. And it's interesting because, you know, this is coming at a time where economic growth globally is not great. It's okay, but it's not great. And in order to have, you know, economic growth, you know, you need people to have capital. So 
all this capital is coming into the market. So that means that everybody is, of course, just flush with capital at this point, right? I mean, everybody's just doing great, but it's not really the case. In fact, if we take a look at the dispersion of wealth, not just in the, in, in the U.S., but because we, we've talked about this before, you know, in, in the U.S., the top 10% of income earners own 90% of the stock market. But globally, it's really pretty much the same story. Glo when we take a look at global wealth distribution, it's uh, I've got I've got a chart of the uh, Brent, yeah Brent's got this too. I've got this chart of the global wealth distribution, which is pretty amazing because forty five point eight percent that's one hundred ninety one point six trillion dollars. It's pretty crazy. 1.1% of the global population owns half the world's wealth. So again, just, you know, when we talk about the top 1% in the U.S., it's not just the U.S., right? It's everywhere. The top 1% owns everything. The top 11%, or the next 11%, I should say, is they own another 39%. So if you take really the top 12% of the population, they own virtually all of the wealth. And so when we're talking about, you know, the financial markets and, you know, looking at the amount of wealth that's out there in the world, it's, it's just being poured into the financial markets by the, by the wealthy. And, of course, it's also coming from governments all around the world. Governments have just been going, and central banks of those governments have just been pumping in liquidity, trying to keep economic activity going, right, in the, in the, in the face of kind of one kind of rolling economic crisis after another. So a lot of this money that's coming in is simply just printed from debt. But there's no doubt as markets go up in value, businesses are doing good the wealthier getting wealthier and they're cycling that money right back into the market. So it's not surprising that we're seeing such a massive inflow of wealth into, into the markets. And particularly when that's coming from not just individuals, but also corporations, uh, corporate stock buybacks are at an all time record. Corporations are flush with cash because of when we went into the pandemic, uh, they, they got bailed out by the government Two, uh, the government put out, trillions of dollars worth of, of liquidity in the form of PPP loans and, and all types of, of corporate support. We were bailing out companies, make sure they had access to capital. Uh, companies were going and drawing down credit lines at banks to make sure they had lots of capital for the economic shutdown. Then they laid off everybody. Everybody started working from home, which is very beneficial for corporate profit margins. So that just, that just really helped swell corporate coffers at that point. So really everything worked out. You know, we all complain about how those evil corporations take advantage of workers. But everything that we've done over the last year has really been to the benefit of the corporate bottom line. Suppressing wages, suppressing workers, getting people to work from home. That's all great for companies. So again, it's it's not surprising to see all this liquidity coming into the financial markets. And the, and the question really becomes a couple of things, though, is that 
what happens next? You know, that's that's the real question. I mean, there's only so much capital in the world, and yes, we're we're producing more, but again, in order to produce more capital, we have to put more and more people back to work. People need to start spending more money. Economic growth needs to get stronger in order to support the flows, otherwise it's going to all reverse. And this is coming at a time where central banks are starting to reverse their liquidity flows to some degree. You know, the Fed's talking about starting to taper starting in November. They're going to they're going to they're going to slow their bond purchases 120 billion dollars a month. That's where liquidity is coming from. But they're going to start reversing that, potentially even hiking rates as we get into next year. But central banks globally are doing the same thing. Japan's got a new minister, prime minister who's going to be reversing a lot of abenomics because after more than a decade of abenomics in Japan, nothing's gotten better. It hasn't worked. Yeah, the, the Nikkei's up in value, but economic prosperity isn't better. The wealth gap is, is you know, just like it is here. So this whole idea of just injecting capital, if you want to take a look at kind of what the future of, of markets are in economies, just take a look at Japan because we're doing exactly the same thing and we're following the same path. Japan has had rolling recessions every few years. Demographic trends are terrible. The young aren't able to really get out into the world and, and create opportunity for themselves. But the top 5% of Japan are doing great. Same thing here in the U.S. So we keep we keep kind of doing the same things, hoping for a different outcome. And we keep thinking that if we just put a little bit more liquidity into things, that it'll all work out just fine. And somehow, magically, just providing more liquidity will kind of start the engine of economic growth. But yet, no matter how we kind of look at it, it's not really working. You know, economic growth is going to ebb and flow a little bit. I mean, it's not stagnant. So we saw a very weak third quarter. Not surprising if we see a little bit stronger fourth quarter. But we're not creating sustainable rates of economic growth just simply by injecting liquidity into markets. Because, again, what this comes down to ultimately is, is about productivity. We have to get people to work. And providing them incentives not to work isn't economically viable and this is th and this is the one thing that's always very interesting about economists right because if you take a look at the uh, at a lot of the economic analysis and and thoughts is like well you know if we just provide a, a social safety net of x dollars or if we just provide some additional capital then that'll make sure that people have the ability to choose the type of work that they want to do and, and people will, will opt for higher paying jobs and, and move out if they have that ability to, to really just wait and look for the right job. And that's not the case of how it works at all. It's amazing that for economists who are supposed to be the smartest people in the room, financially speaking, they have no understanding of human dynamics and how they interplay. And the fact that if you provide somebody with enough money, they'll opt not to work. 
instead of opting to go get training to get a better paying job. It's just, it's just how human nature is. But this is why all of these economic programs that we try ultimately wind up leading to weaker rates of economic growth, not stronger rates of economic prosperity. And those are two very different things. Be right back after the break. So just for the break, talking a little bit about this, you know, kind of massive flood of money that's just uh, flowing into the markets. And again, it's something that, you know, we haven't seen ever in history. $982 billion over the course of the last rolling 50 weeks, right? I mean, just pretty amazing at this point. And the question really becomes for investors is twofold. One, we've had big, massive inflows into equities before. This isn't new, right? We just never had it to this level. I mean, the previously, you know, we saw years where we had, you know, $200 billion, $300 billion, $400 billion. And eventually those flows reverse, just as anything will, right? Nothing is sustainable forever. And right now there's just this, we had this flood of liquidity from last year that was coming in from governments and, and uh, everywhere. And a lot of people were sitting on that cash, not, you know, not sure about the economy, not sure about the outlook, et cetera. And so now that things have kind of settled down here, we're kind of all getting back to normal. It's like, well, I've got all this cash. I might as well put it to work. And so it's all going into the one place that is easy. It's, it's, it's liquid. I can get into it. I can get out of it. If I need my capital, I can get it back. Where we're not seeing it go is, unfortunately, in the areas that we do need to see it, right? We need to see companies going out and saying, hey, I'm going to build new property, plant, equipment. And, you know, there's a supply shortage that's going on right now. So I'm going to go build a new plant to produce more stuff. But they're not doing that. And that's what we need to be seeing more of, right, is, is companies investing in growing their business. And we're not really seeing that because, again, there's a lot of uncertainty there for, for business owners. Inflation's running hot. Got the Fed. Don't know what the Fed's going to do here. The Fed might start hiking rates. Um, you know, people are coming back to work. That's great, but there's still a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. Jobs are hard to fill. So why do I want to go commit a lot of capital? And potentially that backfired when I could just do something very easy with my capital and just buy back stock. And in fact, you know, as we continue to look at U.S. stock buyback authorization, we're at $884 billion for the year. Now, I just said a second ago, we had $940 billion coming into the equity markets. $884 billion went to stock buybacks. Now, that, that lifts the whole asset market, mind you, right? When companies are buying back shares, that's an, that's, that's an artificial buyer of stock. So, I mean, they're in there buying, buying securities, so that's helping lift asset prices. The retail trader has also been doing a lot of buying over the last year. Question will be, the problem with the retail trader is as soon as the market loses 20 30%, they'll be gone. They'll lose their capital. 
So again, the point here is, is that whenever we see these big record inflows of capital, it typically tends to mark a peak in market activity, not the beginning of market activity. I mean, if we if, if we go back and look the last time we had kind of record inflows of, you know, capital into stock buybacks, it was 2018. And that was the peak of it for the next couple of years. In fact, 2018 had a lot of volatility to it, had a 20% decline going at the end of the year. 19 was an okay year, lots of volatility. And then, of course, 2020. Prior to that, 2015, 2016, you had lots of equity flows. And, of course, you had kind of the kind of double back-to-back -back declines there over Brexit and concerns of the euro. Previous to that was 2006, 2007. So again, when it, the point is, is that when you see these peaks of equity flows, it typically denotes kind of a peak of activity because people are just like, I have all this capital, I got to get it invested, got to get it into the markets, right? And that typically tends to be the last leg of a major advance. And, you know, we talk about these market melt-ups, right? And if you take a look at the market from you know, really the 2020 lows till now, it's been this very vertical ramp in, in asset prices. And again, nothing wrong with that. It's just the way markets work. And, you know, again, when we talk about, you know, liquidity flows and where all this liquidity comes from, it's just simply a function that there's been so much capital and liquidity injected by global banks and, and governments around the world. It had to go somewhere. And it went to the most highly liquid place it could go, which was the financial markets. And look, it's been great. If you're in the top, you know, 10% of the economy, you're doing fantastic. Congratulations. And look, you don't have to be that wealthy to be in the top 10%. If you've got a million bucks, you're pretty much in the top 10% of the economy. It's just, you know, there's a very few number of people in that category. Most Americans have less than one year salary saved up. They don't really invest in the market. The bottom 50, 60% of the economy has no money to invest at all. They're just trying to make ends meet. And they go into debt every year to do that. So, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. We've seen all this liquidity come in from all these different angles trying to bail out economic growth, but we're not addressing, as I said before, the one thing that creates economic growth, if we wanted a better, healthier, functioning society, it's not more child care. It's not increased parental leave. It's not any of that. That's nonproductive. It's a nonproductive use of capital. What does create better economic prosperity is creating productivity. Getting people to work getting them to produce stuff, create stuff. That's what creates opportunity, and it creates capital for consumption, right? I've got to produce first so I get paid, and then once I get paid, I can go buy stuff. So what we want to do is provide less incentive not to work, more incentive to work. Then you get stronger rates of economic growth and better economic prosperity, and it lifts the whole boat. But this is the one thing we just keep forgetting. This is why, you know, when by doing things that encourage people to get deeper into debt, it reduces economic prosperity, doesn't increase it. 
but we've got an entire financial system built on debt. We depend on consumers to be indebted. How many, how many commercials do you see on television every day talking about some credit card and the benefits they're going to give you to use their credit card? You could shop anywhere you want, get cash back. Think about that for a moment. You're going into debt to get cash back. Who really benefits from this, you or the financial institution? Credit card interest rates are now back up to 17, 18%. Who benefits, you or the financial institution? Look, I know there's a few of you out there right now say, oh, yeah, well, I use a credit card for everything, but I pay it off at the end of every month. Good for you. No problem with that. As long as you pay it off every month. But what happens for a lot of people that try this is they start doing this like, oh, I'm going to put everything on my credit card. I'm going to get all this cash back. It's going to be great. I'm going to have all these you know, extra trip points, all this other stuff. And I'm going to pay it off at the end of every month. So first month, they pay it off. Great. Second month, they pay it off. Great. Third month, something happens at home and can't quite pay it off this month. No big deal. I'll get it next month. Next month, something else happens. They can't quite pay it off and the credit card balance increases. Now you're in the trap. If it worked that everybody would pay off their credit card balance every month, A, first of all, <laughs> credit card companies would stop issuing credit cards, and B, there, you know, people wouldn't have a problem, right? But we're not financially responsible, and so we keep getting further and further into debt, which detracts from economic prosperity, doesn't increase it. But again, this, this creates this financial bifurcation in the economy between the rich and the poor. The rich are loaning money to the poor people. And they extract the wealth from poor people who are paying the interest on the debt. And that doesn't mean that capitalism is broken, by the way. That's part of capitalism. That's the way capitalism works. But if we want economic prosperity, we have to, to provide incentive for people to work and produce. And hopefully somewhere along the way, we can start providing some financial help in terms of education and doing a better job of that in our school system and our classes that we teach. You know, we have plenty of online tools and applications now to help people be more financially responsible. But why is it that so few people participate in it? I mean, we have, everybody's got an app today to help you be to budget better, pay your bills, all these type of things, right? But yet still, people are massively in debt. Um, last week, late in the week, market started out pretty sloppily in the first part of the week, but Thursday and Friday, stocks really kind of came back to life. Big, big surge on Thursday and Friday, getting back above the 50-day moving average. So we've now conquered all that overhead resistance, the 50, the 100-day, the 150-day moving average, all those, the 20-day. 
uh, markets got above all that. So again, the fact that markets are back above resistance, that negates some of that negative activity that we've had here over the last couple of weeks and puts the market back on a little bit more bullish footing here in the short term. Now, a couple of things as we get ready to move into the end of the year, uh, seasonally strong period of the year, October, November, December. Um, you know, mutual funds right now have a lot of capital to invest. As we were saying earlier, just been massive inflows of capital into markets. Stock buybacks are at a record. So again, lots of support here for the markets in the short term. So nothing to be overly concerned about, as we've been talking about in the newsletter for the last couple of weeks. We've been just slowly and kind of increasing equity exposure a bit. You know, two portfolios after having reduced it back in July and early August, um, we had take we had recommended taking some cash off the table, raising a bit of of uh, of cash there to kind of hedge some risk of a decline. Uh, we were talking about the fact that markets had gone six months without a decline. That was very rare, uh, historically speaking. Long periods without a test of the you know a five percent correction in the markets that was due. And now we've had all that, right? We've had a correction. We've had a five percent correction. It's not. It's, it wasn't hugely dramatic, but for a lot of people, it felt a lot pain, more painful than it was because simply we've gone such a long period of time without a correction. Everybody's like, what's this, right? What's, what is this decline you speak of, right? And that's a little bit over. And not surprisingly, investors are a little bit nervous here. It's like, hey, I've, I just had a 5% decline. It could be more, right? We could keep going down. I, I've been getting a lot of emails over the last couple of days. Saying, well, can't, can't this market correct more? Yeah, it could. But there's a lot of things right now suggesting that it won't. I mean, but there are risks, right? I mean, earnings are, we're about to go into earnings season. We've seen a few companies report earnings, mostly financials, which aren't really affected by supply chain shutdowns. So starting this week and next week um, in particular, we're going to see a lot of companies that do have to deal with supply chain disruptions. And we will see what the impact to their earnings actually are. We'll see what the, the impact of inflation is on these companies' earnings. What's happening with profit margins? What's happening with um, you know, actual earnings themselves? Are they growing at the rate that we expected them to grow? And importantly, keep a watch on sales, right? Sales is what happens at the top line. Much harder to manipulate sales at the top line than it is earnings at the bottom line. So watch what happens with sales. Are sales as strong as we expected? And this is important because we're currently got a market that's trading at almost three times price to sales. So again, a you know when the overall market is trading at the highest level of price to sales in history, sales are important to make sure they're growing in the right direction. But again, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to get we'll, we'll start to get much more information about this. But again, the market, though, short term has cleared important levels of resistance. So if we get a little bit of a pullback today that tests the 50 day moving average, doesn't violate it this week to any great degree, kind of rebound off of that and get above Friday's high, then there's nothing to stop the market from getting to all-time highs by the end of the year. So again, there's, there's a bit of a bullish tone to the market's near term, potentially since we had a correction in October. Or sorry, September, October. So, so again, this, this is, you know, it's important though to separate out the short-term 
trend of the market versus long-term technical dynamics. And, and, and here's why this is important, because I've got a couple emails on this. Got an email over the weekend, you know, saying, look, I've got a bunch of cash. I've been out of the market, um, but I'm worried about getting in because this market could correct more. And that's always the problem. The problem with, with being out of the market is that it gets very difficult to get back into the market because you're worried about making a mistake. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to invest my capital and be wrong. But you've got to get money invested back into the markets, but you can do so in kind of a logical manner. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or pretty, but we've had a decent correction. This is why over the last couple of weeks, we were talking about adding capital back into the market, starting to use that correctional process to put some capital back to work. It's not pretty. Markets were sloppy. I mean, we'd, we'd buy a little bit, and the next day the market would be down again. It's like, whoop, you know, what's happening here? Did we make a mistake? But we just had to hold true to our discipline, watch our technicals, hold true to our investment discipline, and it's worked out. And this is, the, this is where you are now is that you've got to get that capital invested. Doesn't mean you have to do it all at once. Doesn't mean you have to take... 100% of your cash and put it to work today. You can do it a little bit at a time. Just kind of find some spots and invest some capital. You know, but this is the importance about having an investment discipline and a strategy that you follow, even when it seems like it's not working. Because more often than not, it'll work. Now, look, no strategy works 100% of the time. The goal is, is to be a 70% batter. You know, if we can get up to the plate and get a hit 70% of the time, we're going to do great in our portfolios. We'll win. 30% of the time, we're going to strike out. We're going to make an investment. It's not going to work. And then we've got to sell it, right? So what are the mistakes that investors make? A, they don't get up to the plate. So they just sit on cash and don't get invested. B, they invest, and as soon as it doesn't work, they go, well, that's, that's not going to work, so I'm going to stop investing. Or they invest and it doesn't work, and instead of selling the position that they, that they bought that's not working, they go, well, I'm just going to hold on to it until hopefully it comes back someday. And you eventually wind up with a whole portfolio of stocks that aren't working and no stocks that really are working. And this is why it's important to have a process. Look, it, it's okay to be wrong. Again, you know, baseball players step up to the plate all the time. They've got great batting records and they strike out. It happens. Don't let that dictate your entire investment process. Being wrong is okay. It's just, it's just a function of timing and, and guessing wrong. And look, that's all we're, we're all doing that, right? I mean, every time we invest, we do not know for sure what the outcome is going to be. We do not know that the investment we're going to make is going to work or not. We are simply guessing at the future. I think it's cheap. I think there's an opportunity here. I think I can put some money to work. It's all thought. I think I can. But again, Nobody is prescient, right? Nobody knows for certain what's going to happen a week from now, a month from now, particularly a year from now. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. 
we talked about before on the show that <clears throat> the best forecasters are meteorologists for three days. Outside of three days, nobody has any idea what's going to happen. I mean, we can make a pretty solid guess that over the next couple of days, markets are probably going to do one thing or the other. Outside of that, it's a complete guess. And, and you're sitting here going, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to hold it for 10 years. And you don't know what's going to happen over the next three days. So this is why it's important to have a process that says, hey, you're right. This is working. Stick with it. Or, hey, you're wrong. Time to sell it and move on. And if my process will tell me those two things, I can grow capital over time by limiting my losses and by letting the stuff that is working continue to grow. And it's not complicated. It's just a function of having a discipline to do it. We all get trapped into these emotional, these emotional biases. We don't want to admit that we're wrong, so we're going to hold on to stuff that's not working. And the stuff that is working, we, we're afraid that because the other stuff that's not working isn't working, I'm afraid that the stuff that is working is, you know, could reverse on me. So I sell the good stuff, and I wind up holding the bad stuff. And then my portfolio doesn't work at all. But these are the things that we deal with. So again, it's important here. We've, we've gone through a period of a correction. Markets are performing better right now. Technical indicators are still weak. Internal breadth is weak. The overall price action is weak. There's a lot of things to be concerned about with the markets right now. Absolutely. But we can be concerned about them and we can watch those things but still be invested. We just have to be ready to act if those concerns we have become a reality. Then we take action and do something about it. thought this was interesting to wrap up the show with this morning. When we take a look at, you know, kind of the market futures where they are and again the kind of action behind the markets you know there's a lot of good important things that are going on right so again earnings season upon us right now get ready to move a seasonally strong period of time of the year but watch that inflation stagflation which is a measure of inflation and weaker economic growth that's really the thing we want to watch on because that has the biggest negative impact on future growth of markets and earnings in the future. So if you want to watch anything in particular, watch your inflation data and watch the economic data. Be right back tomorrow, of course, with uh, another edition of the show's Technical Speaking Tuesday. We'll get into that and we'll go over what the markets are doing and where we are and how we're positioned. That'll be on tomorrow's show. So tune in then. In the meantime, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest updates, podcasts, more. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.